Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I am Seth, 602-508-0960, One of the phrases we've been trying to bring back is, what is the meaning of this? Another one I'd like to bring back is, this is why we can't have nice things. And I was wondering, David, how your blood sugar was, because someone very generously brought in cheesecake for the office earlier. And that was all you had for lunch, and I was worried about a sugar crash. You seem to be holding up okay. I'll make it. But I went over the top of the hour break into the kitchen. This has been a long-standing problem. Someone also brought in a upside-down cake or a funnel cake or something like that. I think an upside-down cake. And my gosh, it looks like Tom and Jerry on a half-eaten ham. What has been left, just these half-bitten, half-eaten, crummy leftovers, vestiges, excerptal detritus left for someone else to throw away, never mind eat. Can we not have manners around? Can you not take the whole piece? Can you not just leave? I don't understand. This is not a small issue. This is why we can't have nice things. No one is going to eat that, whoever the guilty party is who just, it's awful. I'll tell you why it's not a small thing. Manners are what keep our society together. Edmund Burke, a lot of conservatives like Edmund Burke. He was, uh, you familiar with his work? He was uh, one of the great, great British political philosophers and members of parliament. Wrote reflections on the revolution in France and uh, a lot letters, uh, letter, letter to the sheriffs of Bristol. He wrote, manners are of more importance than laws. Upon them in great measure the laws depend. For the law touches us but here and there and now and then, but manners are what vex or soothe, corrupt or purify, exalt or debase, barbarize or refine us by a constant, steady, uniform, and sensible operation like that of the air we breathe in. They give their whole form and color to our lives. According to their quality, they aid morals— they either supply them or they totally destroy them. You know what I think about, by the way, when I think I'll let you – I see you're champing at the bit. I'll give you a the mic in a minute. But you know what I think about when I think about that quote? I don't know how well known it is, by the way. But I think about these um, these uh, burlesque pride, LGBTQ, transgender pride marches. I think about the sisters of perpetual sin or crazy, as Hugh likes to call them. There is no place more devoid of manners. There is no place more vexing, corrupts, corrupting, debasing, or barbarizing than at these events, including the White House Pride event from three or four Sundays ago. There really isn't. This is not a small issue, the notion we were talking about decency the other day. Soothing, purifying, exalting, refining through a constant, steady, uniform, and sensible operation like that of the air we breathe in. According to their quality, they aid morals, they supply them, or they totally destroy them. And it goes, too, to some of what we were talking about last hour, too, with what we're tolerating with our children. Anyway, yes, you were champing at the bit. Go ahead. 
You do you want to? You have a Twitter account. I think I want you to post what I said. You take picture. I had you take pictures of the evidence. Yeah, you post did. them on your Twitter oh, account. If people want to see what I'm, what I've got my Irish up about here, post them on your t- Twitter account, please. Now say your piece, and but we they, shall move on. But it on. looks so bad that I don't want to have that as a permanent record on my. It Twitter It looks account. awful. You yes. understand presentation. I, I think it's it's appealing to that that social tendency of people to uh, be afraid to take the last of anything. So I think really they well, are. Well, if they don't to have polite. to leave it in total grotesque in an, grossness in an oxymoronical way i think they are trying to be polite it's like leaving the last the sip of milk of in a carton exactly yes and letting it go sour uncovered crumbly it's 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 a sad sad thing of it's a sad sad representation of what a nice slice of cake used to look like the sta- the sad state of all, all office politics uh oh uh oh okay the suits have come down interesting <laughs> column in the daily mail today that um i wanted to get to not everyone loves megan mccain but you know sometimes she really does hit it out of the park sometimes she really hits it out of the park i was giving the suits edmund burke edmund burke i gave the suits edmund burke I'm now going to give him the Daily Mail. Huh? Do we still have? Are we still on the air? Do we still have a job? They haven't pulled the plug yet. <laughs> okay. But did Megan McCain. You requested desserts. Uh huh. McCain. Okay. Megan McCain has a great column. I want to go through with you on the Joe on Joe Biden's presidency. Can I do that? Drugs, indictments, a transgender activist bearing fake boobs on the South Lawn. Can President Joe Biden's administration drag the White House any lower? Yes, they can. Look, there is a lot that we don't know about the dime bag of cocaine discovered on Sunday, just 48 hours before the 4th of July celebrations at the White House. But the circumstances have made folks very suspicious. Initial reports were that the cocaine was found in the White House library. Only later were we told that it had actually turned up in a cubby area used by staff and guests. Now there is a third location where we are now told it was, which was not where a lot of guests go. It was in a under it was in a below ground area right next to right next to the situation room, which is about as classified an area as you can get. Speculation has run rampant over who it could be, a staffer, a journalist, a visitor, or a Biden family member. To be honest, it almost doesn't matter. The jokes about Hunter Biden started immediately. By the way, the only way – I'll repeat what I said yesterday on this story. This story was alive for two two and a half days before the media picked up on it, and they only picked up on it as, as a way to criticize Republicans for assuming and blaming and making, um, making and theorizing that this was Hunter Biden's. The story was to them. The story was about Republicans speculating about Hunter Biden, not that there was cocaine in the White House for the first time. Anyway, as Megan writes, the Hunter Coke theory may be unlikely, but you can't blame people if that's where their minds went first. Hunter's long struggle with addiction is obviously tragic, but it doesn't preclude analysis. He practically lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and attends most major public events, including a recent state dinner 
held days after the announcement of his sweetheart plea deal on tax evasion and gun charges. Then two days after the cocaine fine, Hunter was back at the People's House out on Truman Balcony with Joe and First Lady Jill Budden watching July 4th fireworks. At this point, it's clear that Joe doesn't care how it looks. He treats the White House like his personal property, and that regal recklessness is rubbing off on those around him. How else does one explain the White House staff's decision to invite a radical trans activist to a Pride Month celebration last month? Take one look at Rose Montoya's Instagram page. It doesn't take much of an imagination to foresee potential trouble. And lo and behold, there stood Montoya in front of the portico, top down, chest out, grinning ear to ear, as families and children walked by. But that's not the worst of this administration. It's only a symbol of an administration that is corroding America's character. Ask the White House how many grandchildren President Joe Biden has, and they'll tell you six. It's a lie. It's a flat lie. Navy Joan Roberts is Hunter Biden's illegitimate four-year-old child and the president's seventh grandkid. Luden Roberts is Navy's mother. She's an Arkansas woman and former exotic dancer who was once on the payroll of Hunter's influence peddling firm, Rosemont Seneca. That was until he reportedly had kicked her off the company health insurance plan after she gave birth. Hunter then denied paternity of their child and wrote in his memoir that he had no recollection of their relationship. A DNA DNA test, court filings, and texts from his laptop have proven otherwise. Despite all this... Joe Jill and the White House publicly and privately claim that the president has six grandchildren, not seven. This is the stuff of Trailer Park Trash, a rerun of the Jerry Springer show, except, of course, this is playing out smack dab in the middle of Washington, D.C., an open secret enabled by the mainstream media. I want to say more about this, and I want to say more about the narrative last week with regard to Hunter Biden. Do you remember what it was? The story really should be about Joe Biden's decency and humanity as a loving father. Well, you can't put the word grand in front of father, can you? I want to say more about this when we come back. 602-508-0960. Such a great singer. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960, in the alternative cadence. David Dahl now does have, my producer, has, is now on Twitter. So yep. this has been a great effort. And, uh, you I still have to add a picture and you know, wait, fill but, out my But give everyone your like Twitter handle if they want to follow you. What at is, yeah. underscore David underscore Dahl. That's D-O-L-L, just like a Barbie doll. So at underscore David underscore Dahl. Okay, good. Um, and I'm at Seth Leibson. So if you need to find him through me or vice versa, you can do that. Did you post? Did you post the, the we, we have posted the depredation. The, yes, the depredation. Of the carrion. Cakes. That, yes. The effect of the jackals. Okay. And uh, and I added one more. Yeah. I added one more because you have made a point of yeah. saying on air that yeah. I have the improper ratio yeah. of ingredients when it comes to my sandwich. Yeah, you showed me a really yeah, good yeah. one though the other day. Yeah, I, did so you I take a picture? A, I added good. a picture of the sandwich. That's that you the right said. ratio. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Good work. That is the correct good ratio. Good you know, work. less tomato, more meat. Good. Good. Napoleon said, "A man 
An army marches on its stomach. That's why we care so much about food here. Also, because I'm starving. That's why we care about. <laughs> anyway, yeah. we'll feed him. <laughs> no, not yet. I, I only eat once a day. Um, Megan McCain's column about the indecency of the Bidens. It gives lie to this whole nonsense from last week that the story of Joe and Hunter Biden is the story really of a loving father. Especially when you see this story, as Megan puts it, and as a few others have pointed out with regard to Hunter's child. Megan concludes her column, Joe Biden's great fraud in the American people is the pretense that he is a fundamentally decent man. He is not. He is not. Everything about Joe Biden is pretense. Everything about him. Uh, you know, the notion that this was a man who stood for great bipartisanship, that this is a man who laments the failure of bipartisan efforts anymore. The man who used to lament that, who laments that you couldn't be friends with members of the opposite party, that you had to treat your political opponents as enemies. He, 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 he has been the number one offender of all that, the way he talks about Republicans. Now, did you see, I mean, he cannot help himself, whether it's mega, excuse me, mega extremists or mega mega extremists or that Republicans are a threat to the Constitution or an existential threat to the country. He was talking about some effort uh, in Georgia uh, earlier today and took a slap for no reason, a sua sua sponte slap at Marjorie Taylor Greene. The man is nothing but partisan, and I think it's unforgivable that he compared the Republican Party, as he did in Georgia, to the party of Jefferson Davis, Bull Connor, and George Wallace. I, I, I cannot get past the notion that people think this is a man of decency or bipartisanship or healing or repair. I cannot get past the idea that he can get away with that. I cannot get past the idea that about Mitt Romney, whom he was running against, this goes back a ways, who he was running against in um, in 2012 for the vice presidency, vice presidency said to a black audience, Mitt Romney wants to put you all back in chains. The nature of the egregiousness of that is in its very words, in hack verba, in its very statement, if you will. But it's more than that because it gives lie to the whole edifice of the media and the Democratic Party when they say things like, this isn't your father's Republican Party anymore, so they think they have license to compare us to Bull Connor, which is really your father's Democratic Party, to be honest with you. But the egregiousness of that attack on Mitt Romney— Get, and and the reason this gives lie to all of that is Mitt Romney's the exact kind of Republican. He's not my kind of Republican, but he's the exact kind of Republican the liberals and the Democrats and the media say they wish there were more of. They say, get rid of the Trumps, you know, get rid of the DeSantis's, get rid of the J.D. Vance's, get rid of the Josh Hawley's, get rid of the Tom Cotton's, give us more like Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney is their idea of what a Republican should be. He's not my idea, but he is their idea. So we had him. We had him running for president in 2012, and Joe Biden tells a black audience Mitt Romney wants to put them in chains. This may be the most divisive elected leader in a country. He might be. Joe Biden might very well be the most divisive, all the while running under the cover of someone of decency, someone of repair, someone of unifying our country, someone of putting, someone of putting our country back together again someone who would bring us together. Which, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, David, you would know 
maybe. If I'm not mistaken, that was a temporary theme of the Nixon 1968 campaign, wasn't it? Bring us together. I thought it was. You remember that, right? That's a slogan, yep. Yeah, it was a slogan, bring us together again. That was the notion. I don't know if that was the slogan of of the Biden campaign in 2020, but that was the notion and the caricature built around the character of that man who has taken a flamethrower and a blunderbuss to any attempt or effort at unity or bipartisanship. This is not a man of decency. And when he sits there in these White House Oval Office meetings where reporters are asking him questions, and yes, some of them are shouting at him. That's not new, by the way. That's happened with every president in recent memory. And he just sits there with a grin on his face when they're asking about his views and what he knows about the cocaine found at the White House. And he sits there with that grin on his face. I can't tell whether he knows what they're talking about or whether he has such contempt for anyone questioning him that he doesn't feel he has to respond or that he smiles because he thinks it's all one big joke. And it's none of those things. It's a serious thing. And, you know, I'm worried, too, that we're we're kind of maybe looking at some trees when there's a forest that needs to be discussed here as well. When is the last time other than this story? Bill, help me. This is something you would know something about because you track these things with me. When is the last time... There was a story about the White House saying anything about the drug problem in America. Until this, there wasn't. Until this, there wasn't. 110,000 Americans died from drug poisonings last year, sometimes referred to as overdoses, not even counting drug-involved suicides or drug-involved fatal car crashes, which would get you a number that would be the equivalent of one nine eleven a week, and this White House says nothing about it. The only connection between a drug story and the White House is this, the cocaine found in the White House. I guess when people say that there's no spot in America free from the drug crisis, we can say it with even more credibility now because it includes 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. That was originally written for Meatloaf, but because he got in a fight with uh, the songwriter. What was that great songwriter's name? Steinman? Yeah, thank Jim you, Jim Steinman? Steinman. Well done. He got in a fight. Steinman gave it to Barry Manilow, so Barry Manilow did it. But then Meatloaf did it, and mm-hmm. people can hear both versions and decide. Now, Bill thought he was being clever. That's why you hear his voice. I summoned him into the studio. Welcome to the show, Bill. Yes, welcome it's, back to the show. Well, thank you. And as as they said on Spinal Tap, it's a fine line between clever and stupid. <laughs> yes, I guess so. So I had mentioned I only eat once a day, and you thought you'd be clever by sending me a study that said there's no difference between intermittent fasting and counting calories. I'm going to free you from the intermittent it's fasting. It's the same point. You're just eating all your calories at one point, and you're not going to eat a full day's calories. You're just going to eat two thousand. How many? How many calories do you think you can eat at dinner? More than two thousand or twenty four hundred or whatever it is. You can't. That's it's the same point. Rather than eat, 
Do you understand my point? I don't you think have I do. You have breakfast and you have 1,000 calories at breakfast or 1,200 or 1,500. Mm-hmm. You have lunch, you're another 2,000 calories, especially if you see the way people around here eat. And then you have dinner and it's 24, 25, 2,600 calories. You're, you're, you're pretty soon you're at 6,000 calories a day. Okay. But if you confine yourself to one meal, which you obviously can't stuff yourself on, you're only going to get about 24, 23, 2200 calories. It's the same point. So you still prefer the intermittent fasting, eating less calories overall. It's eating in the less day. calories. That's the point. You it's all about less calories. Three eight hundreds. You'd rather they do were the all Twix, Bill. They were all Twix. <laughs> it, it's it about less calories. <laughs> all right. Um, this is killing me. This New York. Thank you for subjecting yourself to. But you. Anyway, okay, uh, folks. This New York Times. The entire general meet. Oh my gosh, I'm really on thin ice. Aren't I? <laughs> we are on thin ice today. <laughs> we hardly ever get a visit from the suits. Twice. This is a two day. This was a two visit day. Two visits in one hour. <laughs> in one hour, making it worse. Thanks, David. Thanks for pointing that out. Thanks for giving them that talking point for the for the for the for the human uh, human resources file. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Listen, folks. The media. John Hook had a great tweet on this earlier in the day. The media is going haywire. Journalists, the professional journalist class is going haywire on this Missouri versus Biden case. This was the case we discussed with Brett Johnson yesterday, where a federal judge had identified huge amounts of evidence of the government, tremendous amounts of the evidence of the government trying to pressure social media and successfully pressuring social media to engage in censorship on COVID and on conservative issues. Those are two different things, by the way. Just because you questioned COVID didn't necessarily make you conservative. Ask Michael Schellenberger. Ask Jennifer Say. I have no idea what the party affiliations are at the Great Barrington Group, Jay Bhattacharya, these guys. Most of them were not political. But anyway, censoring censoring dissenting views on COVID and censoring conservative viewpoints. Just uh, this, you've got to read the opinion if you want to see example after example after example. There's 150 pages in this judge's opinion, detailing the examples of government pressuring social media platforms to censor, and the journalist community's reaction has been: this is a bad decision that the government should have a right. Indeed, a duty to police social media for misinformation. New York Times, uh, in writing up the case uh, today, has a piece by two of its columnists, Michael Sharon, David McCabe, that is pointing out that this is merely conservatives wishing to spread more misinformation, and this is a ruling that will tolerate more misinformation from dyspeptic, dyspeptic conservatives. Have they totally forgotten, have they absolutely forgotten the whole point of media and journalism? The Pentagon Papers case, Hugo Black and William Douglas, probably the two most liberal judges of the Warren Court, wrote exactly this, quote, the press was to serve the governed, 
not the governors. The government's power to censor the press was abolished so that, so that the press would remain forever free to censure, that is to say, criticize the government. And now the press is just on the side of censorship and the government and won't even question the government? Well, meanwhile, we have an attorney general in Merrick Garland who says to question the Department of Justice is to put fellow Americans at risk. That's the guitar of Lee Rittenauer, the sax of David Sanborn, and the bass of Stanley Clark. The trumpet of Maynard Ferguson all in one song, just the tops in each instrument. The, I'm impressed. Yeah, the, 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 they, you don't get better than those four musicians on those four axes. You just don't. They, they are literally the best. John Hook wrote on Twitter this morning, What happened to journalism? Reporters should be outraged the government is censoring and trying to control free speech, working hand in glove with big tech. A United States district judge calling it, quote, the most massive attack against free speech in United States history, close quote. Good for John Hook. Good for John Hook for writing that. He's a real journalist. Those are strong words. And the New York Times writes this case, quoting, this case is a flashpoint in the broader effort by conservatives to document what they contend is a liberal conspiracy by Democrats and tech company executives to silence their views. The New York Times is lamenting this decision, saying, and it goes on to say, that the government had every right and has every right to police social media for misinformation. Who are they to know what misinformation is? They were the greatest spreaders of misinformation when it came particularly to this issue. If you get vaccinated, you won't get sick. You won't be hospitalized. You won't die. Rochelle Walensky lying to Congress, saying that the vaccines are safe and effective and will prevent transmission when she had already been found to have written an email two months prior saying we have to be concerned about breakthrough infections. And on and on, and Fauci's routine lies in the first year. Masks, you don't need masks, they won't work. You must mask, they have to work. And then the reasons why he said he changed his view and then his admitted lie in the New York Times about immunity, community immunity, herd immunity, and upping those numbers and saying he didn't tell us the truth because he didn't think we were ready to hear the truth. He's Jack Nicholson in, in uh, what? What was it? A Few Good Men. He's Jack. He's yes. He's Jack Nicholson. And a few good men. Colonel, I, I often refer to Colonel Kurtz. That's from uh, Apocalypse Now. What was it? Jeff? It's Jeffries. Jeff Jepson, maybe. Maybe Jepson, something like that. Yeah, yeah like Jeffries that. Jepson. Anyway, um, yes, he plays Jack. We weren't prepared for the truth. He decided. No one elected him, by the way. Over at The Federalist, they write up this story pretty well. Emails, documents, files, and statements show that at the prompting of federal agencies such as the Department of Health and Human Services, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the CDC, and the Census Bureau, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of State, the FBI, and the Department of Justice, as well as the White House, that big tech effectively silenced the voices of countless Americans on COVID-19, elections, and criticism of the Biden regime. That's an awfully big 
structure of agencies actively doing it. I remember when Jen Psaki, as press secretary, stood before the press and the American people bragging about this and identifying a couple of platforms. I think one of them was, before they got to him, Facebook, by name, saying that something like 60% of the misinformation is found on two or three platforms. She was bragging about them engaging in this censorship, and the press thought it was just fine. Now, part of it, I have to tell you, part of it is is jealousy in the media. Part of it is, so long as they don't tell us what to write, we're happy for them to go and curtail social media. After all, they have too many subscribers and they're taking away our readership base. There is a degree of that in there, and maybe a very large degree, because it certainly doesn't comport with what people used to be taught at J school, journalism school, that it is the duty of the media to censor, excuse me, the duty of the media to criticize the government, not to bow down to it and allow the government to censor it. Part of it is that. Part of it is their declining, view, uh, their declining, view, declining viewership if it comes to network television or cable television and, uh, and, and declining subscription bases in, in the printed media. Part of it is their resentment of other news platforms or alternative media. Probably a big part. But it's inexcusable as an ethos or an ethic to think that government has the right to police what they deem to be correct information. This is right out of New Zealand all over again, which is really right out of George Orwell, which is really right out of Kurt Vonnegut and Harrison Bergeron. In his 155-page memorandum ruling handed down on July 4th, Judge Terry Dowdy, chief judge of the U.S. District Court for the Western District, asserted that the attorneys general who brought the case will likely see victory in court when their claim that the United States government, through the White House and numerous federal agencies, pressured and encouraged social media companies to suppress free speech. Defendants used meetings and communications with social media companies to pressure those companies to take down, reduce, and suppress the free speech of American citizens. They flagged posts and provided information on the type of posts they wanted suppressed. They also followed up with directives to the social media companies to provide them with information as to action the company had taken with regard to the flagged post. Boy, there's a lot of government work going into censorship here. This is a big effort, a big effort. Whoever thought that when we talked of or people talked of the bureaucracy and the swamp, that it would come to this, not just undermining political operatives in the government, but undermining the American people. People think we overreacted in saying Merrick Garland had no business sticking FBI and local law enforcement on parents showing up at school board meetings and having them and tolerating them being compared to domestic terrorists. They thought we overreacted. If this were any other decade in America, the press would unanimously have reacted to the government that would do such a thing, or as they would have reacted to Merrick Garland's statements last Friday, that criticism And the questioning of the integrity of the Department of Justice puts Americans at risk and is itself un-American. I almost want to say this is McCarthyism, but you know why it's not? It would be an exaggeration. McCarthy never did this sort of thing. To make it be McCarthyism, 
you have to exaggerate what McCarthyism was. That's how bad this is. Can I make that point again? To compare what this government was doing to McCarthyism, you have to exaggerate what McCarthyism was because it wasn't this bad. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. <laughs> Should be our theme music. Folks, how do you think the administration is handling the economy? Bank failures, stock market volatility, inflation, people talking of a recession. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? Why Refi has that? They have a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio offered up by Y-Refi, and they are headquartered here locally. They encourage you to stop by their offices. They're on the 101 in Scottsdale Road, and I've been there. And I can tell you, you won't get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign anything. When you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I trust them and like them so much, and you can too. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. I mentioned Harrison Bergeron in passing in my last segment. If you want to read that essay by Kurt Vonnegut, I think 1961, it'll take you no more than 10 minutes, and it's haunting. It's haunting about what happens when we – well – I don't want to give it away. I, I think I think I've read it on air once. The Wall Street Journal used to print it every April fifteenth. Harrison Bergeron, B E R G E R O N, by Kurt Vonnegut. Did you have the Nixon audio, David? Do you? Do we have time? You bet I do. Can we play a little bit of it, or do we not have time? Oh, we've got plenty of time for Richard Nixon. Nineteen sixty-eight. I saw many signs in this campaign. Some of them were not friendly. Some were very friendly. Uh, But the one that touched me the most was one that I saw in Dexter, Ohio, at the end of a long day of whistle-stopping. A little town, I suppose five times the population was there in the dusk. It was almost impossible to see, but a teenager held up the sign, bring us together. And that will be the great objective of this administration at the outset, to bring the American people together. That's what I was thinking about. You can, you can thank you for finding that, David. That's what I was said. That was effectively what Joe Biden was, whole point of his campaign in 2020, on about five different levels. Not only restoring decency, we're not even restoring not just decency, but normalcy, unity, bridging partisan divide, all of that. And he's become the arsonist to all of it. But I say has become, was that the, Perfect. That's wrong. He was always that. Sam Stone coming up. Don't go away. We'll be right back.